Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Good morning, Vox. How are you guys? Good. Everybody awake? Yeah. All right. Happy Father's Day. Oh, thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, a couple quick things about today. Uh, after service, we have root beer floats for only fathers. Nobody else can partake. <laughs> so, uh, no, yeah, hang out. Um, it's going to be great. We're going to hang out afterwards. And so I'd love to kind of just talk and chit-chat if you have questions, uh, which brings me to another thing. Uh, here at Vox, we believe that the church is the safest place to talk about anything. Um, and so we want to encourage that if you have questions, because um, we know that, you know, this, uh, this, this nature of this relationship is very rhetorical. Um, so we have questions. You have concerns. You have comments. You go, hey, I don't know how I feel about that. And so if you have questions, um, we'd love for you to text those questions in. Um, I think we have a, yeah, there you go. We have a number there. <clears throat> so if you have questions during the message or whatever, feel free to text those in. If later on you, you're, you're kind of reflecting on something and you go, hey, what does this mean? Uh, feel free to send those in and, and we'd love to be able to, to engage in dialogue and have those conversations. So uh, this is a place where all questions are welcome. Uh, you're safe to ask any question that you are dealing with. Um, which brings me to another point. Uh, this Thursday, Andy and I are going to be hosting a Facebook Live event um, where we'll be sort of just dialoguing and having conversations about different topics. And so um, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with uh, the social media medium, medium of uh, Facebook Live, you can actually... Uh, watch why we're broadcasting and you can engage in conversations and ask questions and um, we'll answer those questions live as we're as we're going uh, if you if you're at work or you have like a normal job like most people do uh, you can uh, you can watch it later you can always watch the rebroadcast because it stays on our, our Facebook page so you can always engage that way as well uh, so I think that's it I don't think we have any more uh, any more Q&A so uh, let me just start real quick. This thing is really low. Okay. Uh, I want to start a little bit because uh, some stuff happened in the media uh, this uh, this last couple days. Um, I didn't hear about it until yesterday because I was up camping with my son. Uh, but I come down and I hear about uh, our Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, making some, uh, some claims and citing scripture uh, when it comes to the government policies. And uh, as I started doing some research and kind of reading and learning a little bit more about the scenario... I thought it's important that I address it this morning. Uh, so if, you're, if you brought somebody and you're a guest, you're like, this is what my church does on Father's Day. They talk about political issues. Yes, because I think that uh, we have an obligation to be political uh, as a church. Now, that's different than partisan. Okay, we're not pushing an agenda, but I think we have to talk about uh, things that matter. And for me, when I hear uh, Jeff Sessions' comments, um, it strikes a particular chord in me uh, because he's using scripture in a way that is one, abusive, two, out of context and needs to be addressed. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to just kind of talk about before we jump into it is, is sort of the, the, uh, where, where he's going with this and why it, it should be addressed and why we need to talk about it. Um, without getting into uh, a disagreement or a conversation about policies, because, you know, we can agree and disagree on the policies all day and long, all day long, uh, where I draw the line is when um, an authority power or anyone for that matter takes biblical passages and pulls them out of context uh, to push an agenda. 
Let me start by saying this. I've been a part of a few um, organizations that have been very spiritually abusive. Uh, and some red flag markers for me are uh, when people use Romans 13, uh, which is the passage that Jeff Sessions used to talk about submission to authority. Apparently, um, because of the policies that were being enacted, some church brothers and sisters uh, began to kind of raise the red flag. Um, and so he addressed them saying that in the Bible, Romans 13 says that you should submit to the authority that's there because that's God's plan. Now, uh, that's problematic because for those of you who know and who've been with us in any length of time, you understand that context is everything. Um, you simply cannot take a passage of scripture and rip it from its original context and then use it to push an agenda. That's called proof texting. Uh, and it's wrong and it's bad hermeneutics. Uh, and so I want to make sure we address this and go, hey, what is this actually saying? So, uh, each letter that's written uh, is written with, a, with an agenda, with a goal in mind. They're very situational letters. Uh, it'd be like um, me writing a letter to a business because of some interaction I had with them, uh, me being dissatisfied with their product or whatever, and somebody grabbing a hold of that letter, taking a couple sentences out of that letter, and then building a whole bunch of statements about who I am from that letter. You see how wrong that is? Because it deserves the context in which it's in. Uh, and so when Paul addresses this uh, idea of submission to authority, you have to understand what's happening in Greco-Roman culture. The first thing is this. Uh, philosophers and thinkers in first century Rome and Greek uh, thought that it was a good thing to be loyal to the government, but never at the expense of doing evil, and it was never about blind allegiance. So simply because the government is in place and God has put that there does not mean that everybody who's underneath it has to do exactly what it says, right? I think we can build a case in scripture about civil disobedience and realize that when something is wrong and evil and is not for the betterment of human beings, that we have, a, we have a, 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 an onus on us to stand up for that and to say, no, that's wrong. Uh, and so to use Romans 13 to say, basically quiet people down and say, no, this is biblical. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong on the situation, the context in which you're taking it from. The other thing is that why Paul was addressing uh, submission to authority was because he wanted Jewish Christians and Christians alike to be in good standing with the government because he feared for their safety. Because in first century Rome, Christians were persecuted and executed. And so what he was saying is, listen, don't, don't stand out too much because you're going to get persecuted, you're going to get executed, but instead be model citizens, obey the law, pay your taxes, essentially what he was saying. And wouldn't you know it, eight years after he writes the letter to the Romans, Nero is in power and Nero begins executing all kinds of Christians, right? So... For Paul, when he talks about Romans 13, uh, there's a very clear agenda. It's a situational letter to a specific people. Um, and as first, you know, as, as Christians today, we have to understand this. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I want to empower and encourage you to do, to do the research, to do the study, to look. Because we have people who can just take something out of context and then speak on behalf of the Bible and behalf of Christians. And it's simply not, not okay. Um, and so uh, when you look at Romans 13, you've got to take Romans 13 in its larger context, which is Romans 12, where he talks about loving our neighbor and caring for people. And so you can't just extract one piece of scripture and then use it to bend your agenda. Uh, that's wrong. And so I wanted to make sure I took a moment this morning to just say, hey, this is, this is flat out wrong. And, and the way that he's using the passage is wrong. Um, it's never, with never blind allegiance. And when, when evil was being asked to do, we have to stand up against that. So anyway, uh, if you have questions, thank you. 
Thank you. So, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Just a little light conversation this morning. Uh, okay, so now we can jump into it. First John is where we're going to look at this morning. First John uh, chapter 3. I'm going to read it. Uh, the passage will be on the screen so you can follow along as well. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Father's love and also what it means to be a child of the, of the Father. So First John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Man, we could just stop and like take 10 minutes and just let that sink in, right? Like how great this Father's love that he has lavished it on us and that we should be called the children of God. And the children, and and he says, and he says, uh, and that is what we are. So John sort of does this double positive, this reaffirming what he just said. He goes, and that is exactly what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we, uh, now we are children of God that, we will be, uh, that what we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Uh, John brings to life this idea of relationship with God. What does it look like to be in relationship with the Father? As he is a father, we are his children, and he calls us that. So we're going to look at this identity piece that, that John discusses. So before we jump into it, I'd love to just pray for us if we could. So if you just... If you want to sit and bow your head, you can. If you want to pray, pray with me. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, all the fathers in the room. We're thankful for um, the way that they have cared and loved. We, we pray for those who have felt the pain of loss of fathers. We pray for those who felt the pain and the hurt of neglect from fathers. We pray that this day would be um, one where they might find healing and rest. And um, God, we we ask that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would help us to be more reflective of your character, uh, that as we are made in your image, as we are image bearers, uh, that we would reflect that great love into the world and the people that we come into contact with each and every day. We love you, Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, this weekend, uh, I got a chance to, actually it was uh, Thursday I left, I got to take my oldest son camping. Uh, and so we, uh, last, last place that we went to go camping uh, is a place that has been something I've gone to for many, many years. It's sort of been a tradition for me and some friends. You know, I was a wildlife biologist before I became a pastor. Uh, and so uh, I used to love to like go night driving for snakes, like catch snakes. <laughs> Weird, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, and so Dallas, my son just loves reptiles, and so it was like perfect to be able to take him. And last year he went and got to hold his first snake, and he loved it. Uh, and so I got to take him this year, and man, it was a blast. We got to go night drive. He just loves snakes. Uh, the first day we woke up, it was like 5 a.m., and we're sleeping in my truck together. And, and he wakes up, and I'm sleeping, and I just hear, snake, 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 snakes. He's like so excited. He wakes me up at 5. I'm like, okay, buddy, yeah, you got to go back to sleep. Uh, but we had a great time. And uh, so it, I, got, I love that. I get to do that with my son. Uh, but I was thinking about this um, the other day. Uh, my son wanted to play with a doll. Like he wanted to actually buy a doll. He wanted a doll to play with. And so my wife took him and they went to the store and he, he saw the doll that he wanted and he got this doll and he, he wanted to play. And he loves it. He loves the doll. He loves to play with it. He loves to nurture it. And it's interesting to watch him nurture the doll. He, he starts to model what he sees from his mom and his dad. And we just love that he gets to do that. And we see his heart and his tender nature, the way that he is with the baby. And so he goes to school and it's share day. 
And so naturally, he wants to take the doll with him to school. And so we're like, awesome, that's great. And so we drop him off and he takes the doll and, and then uh, my wife picks him up afterwards and she goes, how did it go? How did share day go? And he kind of gets quiet. And so my wife's like, well, what's wrong? What, what happened? Why, why are you being quiet? And he said, I, I didn't bring it up. And she's like, well, why didn't you bring the doll up? And she said, because the other kids laughed at me. And uh, when my wife told me that, oh my gosh, as a parent, um, I, this is the first time I'd actually felt that hurt on behalf of my child, where I, I just, I, I, I wanted to reach out and protect him, and, and I didn't want anyone to like, to, to, to make him feel inadequate or to feel weird, um, and it just really, really hurt me, and, and, and he said, because the, the, the kids laughed at me because I had a doll. Well, the teacher, my wife reached out to the teacher, and she asked what had happened. Well, actually, Dallas did bring the, the doll up, um, and the kids started kind of laughing and snickering and saying, why do you have a doll? And, and then the teacher asked him, which she was so smart, she said, well, what do you love about the doll? And he said, well, I love that I get to be a, a good dad. I get to practice what it's like to be a good dad with my doll. And, and so it ended up being a good thing for him. But uh, one of the things that I realized is that um, identity is such an important piece uh, for us. And even as children, how do we build into their identity, who they are? Because we had a long talk afterwards about, you know, buddy, you can, you can play with whatever you want. Uh, you know, you, whatever you decide you want to play with is totally fine. You play with it because you like it. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And, and, and you're a ROA. So you can do what you want to do. And this is something that we have tried to, to instill in our son from a very early age, because uh, I remember reading a thing about uh, how, so, how sometimes parents will say, you know, don't be a bad boy or make sure you be a good boy. So what ends up happening is sometimes kids will attach their identity to either being good or to bad. And so what this person suggested is rather than say, don't be a good boy or a bad boy, affirm their identity of who they are. So early on, whenever our son would do something, we'd say, you know, Dallas, you're not acting like a ROA. I need you to be a ROA, and, and, and we have these rules. What do ROAs do? ROAs love each other. They care for each other. They see others who are hurting, and they stand in the gap for others. And so rather than hitting them with a negative, we try to hit them with a positive. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect by any means. Uh, but this sense of identity and instilling in him who he is, I, I think for us has been a huge part of, of learning to raise our child. And I realize um, that not everybody gets that. Sometimes our identities can be wrapped up in some, some pretty horrific and sad and bad things, and that, that changes how we interact with the world around us. And in fact, when you look at scripture, identity is a key theme throughout the whole of the Bible. When you look at the way the writers talk about God's relationship, um, it's, it's often very possessive that these are my people. I am their God. They are my people. And so there's this, this relationship that we see throughout scripture where God is reaffirming identity of who they are. This imagery of a father and his children is huge because early, early first century when John wrote this, uh, for one, people didn't have relationships with the gods. So if there was the sun god or the moon god or whatever, there was no relationship. You wouldn't be considered a son of that god. So for, for, for John to use these words is, is pretty huge. It's sort of this paradox of what the time and the culture is. And so what is the father's love? Now listen to this. This one author says this. Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. So no other uh, New Testament author uses the word love more than John does. Just listen to this. Uh, so in the Gospels, just the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in just the Gospels, John uses it 44 times. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but the next closest is Luke, and Luke only uses the word love 14 times. So you, you get the idea that John has this passion for this idea of God's love for us. 
in the letters, the epistles, all the letters written after the gospels, uh, John alone uses it in just 1 John alone 46 times. The next closest book is the book of Ephesians, which is only used 20 times. And so the word love peaks in 1 John, uh, 1 John 3, where he, which we're doing right now. He uses the word nine times. The climax in 1 John 4, he uses the word love 27 times. So does John have an agenda? Clearly, right? He's trying to express to his readers the great and magnificent love that, John has, or that, that God has for his people. This, this relationship that he's trying to nurture. And so he uses this word in 1 John. It says, uh, see what great love the Father has lavished. What great love. The word is patapas. Patapas. It's this idea of what country. In other words, the great love is otherworldly. It's not of this culture. It's not of this context. It's so unusual, so unearthly, and so unique to our experience is what John is saying. See how great, how otherworldly, how beyond our imagination this love is that God has for us. One writer says this, we are his children, an act of legitimation in which the father names his child and thereby makes a permanent claim to identity and ownership. This is not, the chi- this is not in the child's hand, but rather, in the, uh, rather the child's identity is in the father's hands so that the security is assured. Think about that for a second. This is adoption. This is God looking at you saying, no, you are mine. You're my child. A God, imagine that, a God who actually wants to be with you. A God who loves you deeply with a love that is so profound, so magnanimous, so deep, and so beyond anything that our human experience understands. He lavished it on us. See, the point that John is getting across is that you are his children and he loves you. These are staggering words for John. And the fact that he says he lavished it on us is huge because... You have to understand the relationship that fathers had with their children at the time that this was written. Human fathers in the Greco-Roman world were not affectionate, and they certainly weren't equitable with their children. Um, They'd pick and chose. Children were often neglected and abused. They were seen as a nuisance for most fathers. Um, When a child was born in er early Greco-Roman history, uh, a father could name a child, quote-unquote, exposed. And what exposed meant was that 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 child, a newborn, could be taken out into the wilderness and just left for dead. I mean, that, like, that's, to think about that kind of relationship, today we just go, are you kidding me? But this was normal context. This was normal everyday life in Greco-Roman world. Tertullian notes that under Tiberius, the ruler, uh, children were sacrificed to Saturn. Children were killed by drowning, exposure to cold, and uh, to dogs. So when, Paul, when, when John says that this God has lavished us with this otherworldly kind of love, he's trying to say something. He's saying, I know that the world in which you live in says one thing, but this God says something different. That you are loved, that you are his. This is what makes God's love so unique, so outrageous, and so scandalous. You know, this is like propaganda. If you're reading this at the time that this letter was written, this is propaganda. Wait, what? You mean to tell me a God loves me that much that he would call me his own? And the answer is yes. 
Overwhelmingly, yes. A love so great and so out of the ordinary that it claims you as a father claims his son. God desperately wants you. Just imagine for a second, I was thinking about this, just imagine it for a second, how different the world might look if we really truly embraced that as an identity. If we embraced the understanding of our identity in Christ, that we are children, how different might our interactions look? What might that do to insecurity when you realize that you're a child of God? How does that change the nature of the relationships that we have with people when we understand that they're children of God as well? How do we see each other? Just let that sink for a second. We are his children. He's lavished it on us. And and John emphatically says, and that is what we are. He affirms it. You are children. You are children of this great father. And so the question then is, is what does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be a child of God? You hear that all the time, right? We even sing songs about it, and you go, but what does that actually mean to be a child of God? Well, John continues in chapter 3 and verse 18. He says, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. You see, this is what's so hard. Because when, when, when John writes this, uh, it's pretty clear what the metric for those who are children of God is. He says that it's, it's pretty plain and simple, that if you're a child of God, that you will love each other. And it's hard because uh, you come across people who claim to be children of God, and yet their actions show none of that right? That's what's so easy about this idea of being Christian and saying, well, this is, this is my belief system, but not really truly understanding what's being said. Because John clearly says, look, this is, what, this is what it means. If you're a child of God, that you love one another, no questions asked. That means that your identity is not a political party, It even means that your your identity is not some affiliation within a a religious group. This idea that I'm Christian, it's like, that's so foreign. Remember, Christianity wasn't Christianity when it began. It started with this marginalized group of Jewish people who who believed in a Messiah. Never in their mind did they ever imagine that it would be this global thing. And yet here we are, people claiming to be Christian and yet not showing love to one another. How far off have we come from the message that was originally given? So you can claim Christianity and still not actually claim your sonship or your daughtership. So John says, man, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. Love is the the plain and simple metric. And this was controversial. Because it was written at the same time where there were political splits, there were cultural splits, there were racial divides, even amongst Christians. And so for John to say this is actually pretty shocking, which is funny because 2,000 years later, we're in the same boat, right? That it's still relevant, that it still means the same thing. If you know that you are a child of God and you've embraced that identity, 
then it should follow that when you see others, you see children of God as well. How does that change the way that we interact, the way that we have conversations, the way that we um, push and stand for people? Care for the marginalized, care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the foreigner, because they are children of God. What are we to do when the metric is love one another? And not just in word, but in deed how we do it, how we act it out. I love um, how Jesus uh, in Luke uh, gives this illustration of the prodigal son and he talks about these, this, this relationship between a father and two sons. And so if you don't know the story, let me just give you a little ba- a backstory. So uh, Jesus is standing in front of uh, some Pharisees and some other people. So he's got a mixed crowd of people around him. Uh, Pharisees are just the religious people who think they know everything and think they're right. Um, and they're trying to take Jesus down. And so he's having this conversation and he gives them this parable. Uh, and as, as always, when Jesus tells a parable, he's going for shock value. So he always starts with this crazy, outrageous, outlandish story that's always going to get the person's attention because you're like, wait, what? And so he starts to tell about this father who has this great inheritance and he has these two sons. And the one son uh, is like, I'm done with this family. I want to take my inheritance. I want it now. I want to get out. Now, for the people who were listening to Jesus talk about this in his day, that is like absurd. A son who would ask for his inheritance before you were dead? Imagine that today. Imagine if you were like, your son came to you and was like, hey, I love you. Can you just give me my inheritance because I'm out? I mean, even today, that's pretty staggering, right? It's kind of like your your kids going off to college, right? (laughs) Let me have your inheritance because I'm going to go to college and I'm going to learn, right? That's what they do. Um, And so when Jesus says this, the people who are listening are like, this son should just be dead. Forget this guy. Who is this kid? Just banish him from the family. And so Jesus goes on with the story and says the prodigal son, the son takes uh, his inheritance, the father gives it to him willingly, he says go, he goes. He goes out in the world and he squanders all of the money that he's been given. He finds himself at the lowest possible point he could be in his life. Literally, he's laying with pigs, which is another shocking thing, right? That Jesus is shock value because people understood the relationship with pigs, that that it was unclean. And so here's this guy who's now sleeping with pigs and trying to eat their food because he's got nothing. And he's having this dialogue in his head about how I can come back because now I want to come back, right? So now you're like, if you're the religious guy, you're going, come back? I don't think so. No way. And so Jesus continues to tell a story that as the son finally works up the courage to go back to his father, the father has been looking every day for when the son is going to come home. And some of his servants come and say, your son, your son has come back. And the father doesn't go, oh yeah, let him come. I got something for him. You know, that's how you think the story should go. And that's pretty much how they told the story. But Jesus goes, no, the father leaps off the porch and runs to find the son and starts kissing him. The son can't even get words out. And he loves the son. He goes, let's have a party. Let's throw this huge party because you're back. He puts on a robe and a ring and some sandals, all signifying that he gets his identity back, that he's a part of the family. And it's like, you're listening to this. If you're one of the, the people in that day, you're going, that's insane. Why would he do that? And so we know this story. You've probably heard this story. But really, the crux of the story is the older son. You see, you probably haven't heard much about the older son. But let me tell you about the older son. The older son is the kind of son that followed all the rules, did all the right thing, did not 
take the inheritance and go and do things and squander it and then come back and think that he was going to get accepted in. No, he worked like he was supposed to work. And he finds out that the son has come back, his brother has come back, and you know, he's probably thinking, my no good brother is back. Oh, I can't wait. And when he walks in, he hears a party going on. He can smell the barbecue. The music is pumping. He's like, wait, what? And he comes back and he pulls the dad aside. I can just imagine him standing in the corner, like shaking his head. He pulls the dad aside. He goes, what's the deal? He takes all of your money. He goes and makes a disgrace of himself in our family name. And you throw a party for him? And here is where Jesus turns the table on those people, the religious right, who thought they, had, who thought, who thought they got everything right. He says this in Luke 15, verse 31. My son, you should love that. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. Now, let me just, because let me just get to this, this point right here in 30, verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, the older son, he lost his sense of identity. He didn't understand that he didn't need to have a party. He had it all already. And so he was coming from the wrong place, the wrong perspective. He missed that he actually was the son that, that had everything. And so what does that say to you and I? as sons of the Father. It means that everything that he has is already yours. That's good news, you know why? Because it means no more achievement. It means no more earning. It means no more toiling and trying to become perfect so that you could step into a church one day. Everything I have is already yours. This is, this is sort of the paradox, this is the most confusing thing about grace right? Because the, the grace is like the big joke on you. It's like, oh, you thought that you had to try to earn this back? No, 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 you had it already. Everything I have is already yours. How much different does the, 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 the second son understand the world when he realizes he could have had a party anytime he wanted? They could have, they could have burned a calf. They could have had a barbecue. They could have done all that stuff. It was already yours. As children of God, we've been given this incredible identity. Everything that he has is yours. This, this speaks so much to being complete and whole. That as we find our identity in sons and daughters of God, that we are complete, that we are whole. That we don't need to, to look around and, and think, what else do I need to do? How do I need to get my place in order so that somehow I can, I can be accepted? No, no, no. How great the Father's love that's lavished. How otherworldly. How beyond our human experience is this great Father's love. A Father whose love calls you his own. A love that transforms you into his child. A love that says, all I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. He gives it freely to us. I don't know what your father's situation is like. I don't know what it was like for you growing up. And I'm not saying that simply because this is presented in scripture as a God who has a relationship and loves his children, that it's gonna somehow erase all of the bad memories and the feelings that you've experienced. But I will say that as you engage with the text, as you engage with God, 
and you allow his Holy Spirit to fill you, it does begin to reclaim some of that hurt and some of that pain. But some of the lies that you've been told, some of the hurts and pains that you've succumbed to, you can rewrite that. You can begin to embrace this identity as a son or a daughter. And that's good news because it means that we can go out and we can treat others that same way and not be like the older brother who goes, what? He disgraced. How can he come back? No, no, no. Everything I have is yours. Everything. That's good news for today. It's good news that we are called his sons and his daughters. God, thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to be together, to gather. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, how you have chosen to express your love for us in such a unique and profound way, that you would be our father and that we would be your children. How unique, how extraordinary, how magnificent. God, I pray that as we leave this place and maybe some of us wrestle with this identity and what does it look like to be a loved child? What does it look like to be called enough? What does it look like to be said, you are whole and you are complete and everything I have is yours? God, I pray that you would begin to heal, that you would begin to build up, that you would begin to encourage, that you would solidify the relationships that you have started in us, that you would call us to something deeper and to something more, that we uh, can be your loved children in a world uh, that wants to separate, to cause dissension, and that we can be peacemakers and that we can be the kind of people who bring your children together under this banner of love. God, thank you for the way that you see us. Thank you for the way that you call us into relationship. Thank you for your grace um, that just goes beyond our understanding, that it's scandalous, that sometimes it's hard to comprehend and even understand, but thank you for it. God, we pray um, that you help us to be a light in your world. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. While he is cute, I didn't bring him out here for the awe factor. This is what happens when mom and dad are both doing stuff in service. We have to trade off. Uh, and they couldn't get him to stop crying. So, uh, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, happy Father's Day. We're thankful for you guys. Thanks for being a part of the community. Um, as you exit, there are participation boxes out there. If you love being a part of this community um, and want to participate that way, um, we would love for you to do that. If you want to get involved and help, that's another way to participate. We'd love for you to do that. Uh, we desperately need help on teams and setting up because this takes a lot of work. So uh, enjoy the root beer floats. Enjoy your weekend. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vox Community. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.